And then, of course, you have, I think, really a vastly underserved population of companies that's really small companies who, quite frankly, if they address security at all, um, are often really heavily reliant or entirely reliant on external vendors to do that or help them with that, right? So these vendors really provide all of the kind of preventative sorts of controls that hopefully um, prevent an incident from happening in the first place. You're listening to KBCast, the cybersecurity podcast for all executives. Cutting through the jargon and hype to understand the landscape where risk and technology meet. Now, here's your host, Carissa Breen. Ted, welcome to the show. How are you going today? I'm doing well. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks for joining me. I think it's going to be a bit of an interesting chat today to talk a little bit more about your background, get a little bit more into the mind of what you're sort of seeing in the digital forensic space. But before we jump into that, we always like to start our conversation off talking about you and your journey. So please uh, talk to us about where you sort of started and what are you sort of doing now? Sure. So I kind of think of myself as someone who sort of snuck into the cybersecurity industry through an unlocked screen door on the back porch or something like that. Um, After university, I actually started out in law enforcement. Um, I had planned to really go into a federal agency, the FBI, U.S. Secret Service, something of that nature. But I kind of went through the application process for uh, the Seattle Police Department, sort of on a whim, kind of just to get an, a, a sense of what the, the process was like to hire on to a, a law enforcement agency. And um, so I went through that process, got offered a job, and it was kind of a bird in the hand, worth two in the bush sort of situation. So um, I signed up. Um, you know, I, I've always been a geek, like even as a kid, I guess my first real kind of computer was a Commodore PET with 8K of RAM in it back in the late 70s. Uh, so when I became a detective uh, in the mid-90s, I was assigned to the crime analysis section where I wrote some custom scripts and software uh, really to pull data from various disparate systems and parse the data, do analysis, looking for patterns and linkages and so on. Um, so anyway, I, I was offered the opportunity, I guess, you know, they're like, okay, well, you can spell NT, you can spell Unix. So I was offered the opportunity to go to uh, computer forensics training. And, and so I took them up on that. Um, and there was a small group of investigators at my agency and at others that were doing digital forensics kind of before it was cool, right? So back then, they didn't have dedicated standalone forensic tools like NCASE or Expert Witness or FTK or uh, Cellbrite or anything like that. So um, either you were using sort of standard data recovery types of tools or you had to write tools yourself. Um, well, so I and then I got moved to another division within the police department where um, I was helping to design an intelligence analysis system to do things like link analysis around really large complex investigations. So I was doing database work and some development and um, but also handling a regular caseload as a detective. So it's kind of a weird time in my life. But um, well, security became a big issue for me because like I was suddenly the custodian of information that could literally lead to people getting killed, right? So um, I started going to things like Black Hat and SANS and DEF CON and so on. And I started sp- attending and, and occasionally speaking at local meetings of 
industry groups like ISACA and ISSA and, and so on. I got my my CISSP, um, and, and eventually I got recruited away from from law enforcement uh, by one of the big four uh, accounting firms, or I guess at that time it was a big one of the big five accounting firms, into their um, information risk management practice. Um, and I started doing things like network pen testing and, um, you know, application reviews and other types of things like that. Uh, and just general security consulting. And then really over the past 20 plus years, I've worked at a variety of, of deeply technical consultancies of various sizes and um, run teams doing pen tests and code reviews and application reviews and all kinds of stuff for public and private sector you know organizations and you know, really enjoyed all of it. Um, so that's me. Wow, that's awesome. I actually had another guy I interviewed on here from the US as well. He was in the FBI for 20 years, but he was saying it takes like I don't know, years and years and years to sort of get into the FBI. And he said he just kept calling up and eventually they were like, yeah, okay, we'll, we'll just put your application ahead of everyone else's because you just keep calling up. Is that true? Uh, you know, I mean, at the time I hadn't really started the, the application process for the FBI, but it certainly is quite selective. Um, and so, yeah, that doesn't surprise me at all. Yeah, absolutely. I just found that so interesting because I, I straight away, I mean, as an Australian, a lot of the the shows around, uh, you know, criminal investigation, do you think of law and order? Is it anything like that in the real world or not really? Well, there's certainly a lot less paperwork on the shows, right? Uh, there's they, they don't show the, the dozens and or hundreds of hours of documenting things uh, uh, so that there you have cases that are ready for court, you know? Um, and um, well, and, and there are other things in, in those p- police procedural types of shows. I think, you know, they don't um, and, and, and rightly so. They don't really capture how horrific some of the crime scenes actually are. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I don't know. I don't think I have a strong stomach for that stuff. It makes me feel it makes me feel a bit sick, actually, when I'm w- watching some of those shows. So you've got a really, really interesting background because, I mean, you've had all of the, these different uh, experiences, different jobs, different divisions as well. Would you say because of that, that's really brought quite a unique perspective to what you're doing now? Because I mean, I worked in a bank and I, I used to do a lot of the reporting for the bank and the security division. And I remember going to the forensics team and getting their sort of updates. And so they had come from a traditional banking background, some of the people that I was dealing with. And so I'm really keen because you've had sort of that diverse uh, experience. And do you believe because of that, you have this unique view around digital forensics and how people are talking about it and reporting about it, which we'll get into in a second. But I'm just keen to hear your thoughts because, again, you've seen things from all sides of the coin. Yeah, I guess... um... The things that I learned from my my sort of you know real professional investigative career was really around the proper ways of structuring your narrative, structuring your report in a way that it's uh, that it's really suitable for use in court, right, or suitable uh, for use in presenting the facts to a jury. Um, 
you know, one of the the key things too is that um, I I actually don't like going to court. I don't like testifying in court and so on, or, or waiting around to testify in court. Um, and fortunately, I think as as a as a detective, I didn't have to go to court very often because I'd like to think that I wrote really good reports and they were detailed and they were written in a way that was easily usable by the prosecution. Um, you know, and um, easy, I didn't have to. Um, appear and uh, and and testify about about you know clarifying some points that perhaps I didn't elucidate in the report correctly um, and and so I think that has translated over really well to the private sector uh, in terms of being able to create reports create various kinds of deliverables and so on having a notion or thinking ahead about how they're going to be used right um, you know I, I like to say that, um, when I was a detective or when I was a police officer, you had to consider that when you were writing a report, that it could be years before that actually goes to court, depending on, you know, if the person's in custody or if it takes a while to find the, your suspect and arrest them and, and that kind of thing. Um, so it could be years before that actually gets to court. And you need to to paint the picture of all of the facts and how you arrived at various conclusions and so on to, in order to make an arrest or whatever, uh, in a way that they're, they're going to paint the picture well two years from now. Right. And more importantly, that you write clearly in a way that is going to present the facts appropriately to 12 members of a jury who weren't there at the crime scene or at the arrest or whatever, two or three years ago, you know? And so uh, really I've kind of always approached my technical writing in that way, under trying to think about what the intended purpose is of the final product um, and making sure that, that all of the appropriate information gets captured um, in the right way and presented in the right way. Wow. That's super interesting. Yeah. Taking years. Wow. You're absolutely right. Before we jump into that, why didn't you like going to court? Was it sort of the waiting around that you didn't like or you didn't like having to speak in front of the jury and do all those types of things or? Oh yeah. I mean, I, it, there's, there's a lot of waiting around. There's a lot of waiting around to testify. <laughs> um, you know, you could get, get a subpoena for a particular day to appear and you you show up and it ends up being two or three days of waiting around to testify. Right. Um, and then, you know, I mean, Sometimes sparring with defense was interesting, but often I, I just didn't really care for that kind of adversarial sort of thing. But uh, yeah. Yeah, I totally, I totally can understand. So in terms of the reporting, one of the interesting points that you raised were you have to write reports probably with the intention of it being in perpetuity, right? If it's going to take years, uh, sometimes you're probably not going to remember all the facts and everything that happened, especially when other people are reading at it, read, reading it, and looking at it for evidence and and going through it like with a fine tooth comb. So let let's jump into this side of things because let let's probably talk about your experience in writing these reports, and then let's sort of apply this to the security space because I mean. I've looked at some of these reports before and they are quite detailed. And I think that perhaps using a lot of that detail is not always relevant for people that need to perhaps sort of communicate that up the chain. And I know that we're going to speak about that in a second, but I'm keen to just get your thoughts from what you've done traditionally 
and then how we can apply that in the security space today. Sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, looking at the law enforcement side of things, going back, uh, writing a report with all of the, the detail around what you did as part of your investigative process, um, detailing how you collected the evidence, how you processed it, how you analyzed it, and then painting the picture of how you arrived at certain logical conclusions based on your, your analysis. Uh, that's really critical. But you also need to be able to summarize all of that in a way that's easily digestible for different different types of, of people who are going to use your, your reports, right? So um, that's a really important point to keep in mind in the private sector as well, um, where we're dealing with reports that may, be, may find themselves as part of uh, a civil case, maybe a couple of years from now. And at the beginning, nobody knows that this is going to actually be part of a lawsuit from either direction, whether you your company is doing the suing of somebody or your company is getting sued. Uh, and so you, know, you have to sort of think ahead and think as you're creating your, your deliverables uh, for your investigation that you need to do it in a way that you're obviously being very professional and diligent and capturing all the appropriate information. Um, but then also thinking about, you know, what the, the, the potential downstream processes are going to be that rely on that document you're creating, right. And making sure that it's, it's created and formatted and packaged in a particular way. Absolutely. And I totally agree with you. So from your point of view, coming from your background, doing this today, what are you sort of seeing in the market when it comes to this type of stuff? Like, as I alluded to before, I've seen a lot of the documents, they are quite long, uh, they are quite detailed. And sometimes I think that it's a bit of analysis paralysis. Uh, and I, I mean, I don't know specifically, but my hypothesis would be that people get lost in a lot of that stuff. So, and, and I, I think that happens across the board with any sort of thing in security, to be really honest. So I'm keen to get your thoughts on what you're sort of seeing. And then off the back of that, like, where do you think like people can improve? Because you've, you've got this experience, you, you know what it's like to construct a really good report. Uh, and and I, I'm keen to just really hear what, how would you go about this for people who are listening? Sure, sure. Well, I think, you know, what I have seen really varies based on the size of the organization or on the type of the organization um, and its maturity level and so on. I think that at one end of the spectrum, at companies that are really large and sophisticated and mature, perhaps like, you know, the banks that you worked at, right? Companies that are large and sophisticated enough that they can actually have their own incident response teams and their own well-defined incident response processes. They're pretty good at doing things like carrying out the initial triage and doing threat hunting and, you know, carrying out the actual investigations internally and so on. And, and they have sort of a uh, the advantage of having the internal understanding of the organization to effectively tailor their reports, their output, um, and their communications to senior management and other kinds of key stakeholders in a way that's really effective for that organization. Uh, you have other organizations or companies that are kind of mid-sized companies that may have to rely heavily on external vendors, right? They, they outsource a lot of their 
their security processes um, to manage security services uh, providers, MSSPs. So, you know, think like maybe SecureWorks or AlertLogic, those kinds of of places. Um, And and they either um, outsource some aspects of monitoring to them or all aspects of monitoring to them, um, which can be helpful, right? Because they can, those kinds of providers can give that company 24 by seven sort of coverage if they don't have the staffing levels to be able to do it themselves. Um, or they um, they might outsource forensic analysis and incident response specifically to forensic ex- experts, you know, teams like um, think uh, FireEye or Kroll or NCC Group, you know, um, and service providers who can kind of drop uh, parachute in some forensic experts into your environment uh, in the event of a breach or an incident, something like that. Well, so, or they might have maybe a hybrid approach where you've got like internal teams that are performing some monitoring and that there's kind of a a split in the function of of monitoring sort of either horizontally or vertically with some external provider. And the internal team might be responsible for doing investigation or response for certain systems or certain parts of the infrastructure that are kind of considered their scope, right? And that when an incident happens, uh, particularly if it's obviously like crossed that sort of boundary between what internal and external looks at, then your challenge is really coordinating that communication, coordinating the evidence collection and analysis and your recovery efforts and all of that, as well as, of course, doing the reporting. And so a lot of times you end up with a reporting process that's that's really disjointed, right? And your external parties they might not understand the appropriate structure or content that your organization kind of prefers uh, to have that output be really useful to them. Um, and then, of course, you have, I think, really a vastly underserved population of companies that's really small companies who, quite frankly, if they address security at all, um, are often really heavily reliant or entirely reliant on external vendors to do that or help them with that, right? So these vendors really provide all of the kind of preventative sorts of controls that hopefully um, prevent an incident from happening in the first place. But also they're they're outsourcing the ability to detect um, some kind of, of incident and then to ultimately respond to that. And so those companies, these really small companies, they probably don't have the in-house expertise to really select the right set of services that they need from a security perspective, um, or they don't have the funding to really buy a tailored set of services from that provider or a set of providers. So the coverage and the deliverables that they typically get from those vendors, I think tends to be fairly canned, right? And it's difficult for them to digest. It's difficult for those smaller companies to really derive a lot of value from them. Um, And But across all of those spectrums, other than like the really large companies who can run their own internal teams, I think that uh, it's really easy to get overwhelming, overly technical reports, right, coming coming out of investigative um, processes or events. Absolutely. And I I know because I used to be that person that wrote reports. And I can understand when you're presenting something to someone who then has to present to someone else, you need to give them... The cliff notes, these are the main things you got to speak about. So you have to go through a, a, like a chain of command on these are all the points that need to be communicated. And probably by the time it gets to the end person, it's 
change or it's Chinese whispers or whatever it is. And I think that would you say from what you've said, you, you spoke about the content being disjointed uh, and super technical, super jargony. Would you say from your experience that that most executives feel incredibly overwhelmed when they're getting a digital forensics report, they have to then give an update to their CEO or whoever internally. How do you think they respond to that? And do you believe because it is so technical and detailed, a lot of the key points completely aren't conveyed at all? Sure. Yeah. I, I certainly you've got um, overwhelm coming uh, at executives if you drop uh, a standard sort of detailed forensic report on their desk, right? I mean, if you hand an executive, you know, a 30, a 40, 50 or more page detailed technical report, they're, they're going to look at the first page, hope, hopefully uh, hoping that there's an executive summary there of the key three to five points that they need to know, right? And they're probably going to look at the last page before any appendices or whatever for some set of conclusions or observations or recommendations on what to do next, right? But the middle of it, uh, they're, if they try to read it, they're going to be overwhelmed by it. I mean, I think that generally when people go into to technology as a field or they go into cybersecurity, they do it because they, they love kind of the geekiness of it, right? They love really diving into the deep technical details of systems and how they operate and, and so on. Um, and it's super easy, I think, to kind of fall into the trap of uh, of seeing technology or, or seeing security as sort of ends unto themselves. Uh, and it, it's easy to sort of forget that, at least in the context of where you work, the technology is really there to support critical business processes and, you know, the operations of your organization, right? And security is really there to support those business operations in a safe way that you know, preserves confidentiality, integrity, availability, and so on. Um, and, and But it, it's not about the technicality of it once you start having to report to executives. I mean, I, I once had somebody say, you know, you're technically correct, the most annoying kind of correct, right? Um, it, it's really easy to sort of fall down that hole of, of trying to make sure that you're technically correct. But if you're not, if you're not, um, communicating effectively, then it kind of doesn't matter. I mean, if you're part of the the incident response and investigative forensic sort of process, then of course you, you want to be very professional, very thorough and meticulous in how you document all your evidence and, and, and how you collected it, how you analyzed it, how you protected the chain of custody, all that kind of stuff, how you, uh, how you, how you arrived at various conclusions and so on. But uh, th- that's not what your executive suite needs to see usually, right? They they need to understand what the business impact is and and what both the short and kind of long-term implications are of what happened. Yeah, you're absolutely correct when you say that people focus on the technicality. I totally relate. Uh, I used to do like a lot of the communications around like pen testing reporting, for example. So this is the, like you mentioned, the meticulous report. But then it's when you're, when you're presenting to someone that needs to sign off on it from a, like a project point of view that isn't a security person, like probably a project manager, like you need to convey the top points. Would you say that most people kind of miss the mark when it comes to that? Because of, of course, getting all of those details are important, but then it's that next level above of we've communicated 
all of the things that have happened and, and the event in, in quite explicit detail, but then the, the communication and going to an executive, it's still quite not there in terms of people are missing the mark. And I kind of get it. I do understand. But then, of course, it creates that Chinese whispers that think the things weren't communicated that needs to be potentially. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, one of the consistent problems that I see uh, related to incident reporting or forensic reporting really is trying to use a sort of one size fits all approach to packaging the information, uh, even if you need to present it to different sorts of audiences or different parties. Um, And so that typically leads to way too much technical detail in most cases in, in the report, right? And it makes it really hard for different categories of what it calls consumers, really, of your, your deliverable to, to quickly point, pull out kind of the most salient points for their particular business purposes. Um, so I think that's where a lot of folks are missing the mark. Uh, and I mean, I, I get why it happens, because there's certainly a lot more complexity in today's environments than, than in decades, years and decades past, right? Where you have critical business systems or functions that um, are relying on, you know, SaaS platforms or, or platform as a service platforms or, or some kind of hybrid cloud service models. Um, so you have a lot more actors in the mix and you have to kind of coordinate and make sure you have good communication between internal teams and external teams and, and making sure that you have all of the moving parts and, and the, the parties involved are moving in the same direction, particularly under the stress of, of an actual event, right? And, and where you have really time sensitive things happening and you, uh, in terms of doing the investigation and, and responding to and, and, um, and recovering from incidents and so on. But it's really that coordination and communication between various teams, whether they're internal or external, that I think is critical not only for reporting, but also forms the backbone really, or, or makes the, the difference between uh, what's a, a successful response that is merely a, a bump in the road for your company versus something that turns out to be a catastrophic incident, right? Um, and I think part of that too is making sure that you understand ahead of time what information you need to collect and how you need to present it in, under various circumstances or, or in different contexts. Um, uh, you have also, I mean, going back to my, my previous point around how there's so much complexity now with a lot of external um, service providers and so on as, as part of the investigative and forensic process, you need to make sure that you and they are really clear uh, on where the boundaries of responsibility are around what you as an organization or company do security-wise and investigation-wise and, and what the, your, your service provider is doing for you, right? A lot of companies, they make assumptions around what the service provider is, is giving them in terms of security, uh, but those assumptions could be vastly different from what the reality is, right? And you end up at during an event, during an incident, you know, going to your service provider and and you're in a position of saying, well, I thought you were logging that, that data, you know? <laughs> and the service provider says, oh, no, no, you know, we were only providing you the mechanisms to log that data if you wanted to turn that, that capability on, right? Um, and so those kinds of things are, are, are uh, technical bits that 
need to be considered early on, but you also need to consider how you're going to to consume as a as an investigative team, how you're going to consume and process that data, and then how you're going to present it back in a usable fashion. There's a couple of things in there that you said. Loved what you said, by the way. So you mentioned one size fits all. What do you sort of mean by that when you say that? Yeah, so I guess what I mean by that is that it's it's all too common for an a an investigative report being written with all of the technical information in it uh, to support the to support its use in you know subsequent litigation that kind of stuff. So it's it's a really good forensic technical report, but it doesn't get altered in any way. It doesn't get digested. Right? Doesn't get processed in any way to present it in a much more concise fashion or to focus in on specific key points that are important to some audiences and not to other audiences, right? So it's really, when I say one size fits all, what I mean is taking that that original technical forensic report and trying to just use that same report for all kinds of different purposes. Gotcha. So just so I have this right, it's probably like someone using a very stock standard framework slash report and they're trying to apply it to every single incident, for example, but they're not sort of customizing it or they're not taking things out perhaps that aren't required or necessary. Uh, Is that sort of what you mean by that? Just so I got that right. So, well, that's part of, that's one aspect of it. So if you have, if you are using a particular template or format for mm-hmm. your investigative and forensic reports, right? And you're not maybe changing the structure of your report based on the actual events and the actual facts of the particular incident, then that might be a poor fit. But I think the thing that I'm really talking about is taking a report, even if it's well-written and well-structured, and and just taking that raw report and using it for multiple kinds of consumers, even if that's not the optimal way to present the facts to that consumer. Totally can understand and relate. Now, the other thing that you mentioned before, Ted, was the boundaries and establishing that with vendors. So how would you go about, if so, if you're sitting in a company and you're thinking, oh my gosh, I actually haven't established any boundaries with vendors. And if I've got to obtain information from them that they're supposed to be doing because I made an assumption, how would you sort of go about sort of framing that conversation? Sure. Well, hopefully you have a really good, you know, you have good relationships with your various vendors and suppliers. Um, and it, I think it's really as, as simple as having the conversation with whoever your primary account manager or, or or point of primary point of contact is with that particular organization and say, look, we want to make sure that in the event of a security incident, that we are all on the same page in terms of what you can do to help us recover, detect, recover, investigate an incident, um, and what the process is for contacting you making sure that the that it, it's appropriately escalated as a as an urgent request right making sure that we have all of the, the communication plans documented and agreed to ahead of time and that we understand what data you can provide us in what kind of time frame um, 
you know, if you, what kinds of other capabilities you have on your side to help us in our investigation. I think a good example maybe is um, there was a company in the U.S. a few years ago that literally went from being in business to being out of business in about eight hours, right? And what happened was that they they were a um, they were like a a code repository, you know, version control type of of company um, force that had, of course, software companies as as their customers. And they had all of their stuff in AWS. And they, I, I think, the, um, it, they felt one of their administrators um, was, you know, targeted with a phishing attack, um, and so had credentials stolen to the AWS console. They didn't have two-factor authentication enabled, so you know that allowed your attacker then to just log in, um, and. Basically, they came in to work one morning and there was a, um, a text file that had been dropped, um, I think, on, the, on an administrator's workstation. And it was a ransom um, demand, right, uh, letting them know that they had taken over their AWS instances and that uh, they, they needed to get paid or else they were going to start destroying data. And so the company decided, well, as a first order of business, we're just going to change all administrative passwords. The uh, attackers, of course, had already created multiple accounts for themselves um, that allowed them back into the, the environment. Uh, and they were able to get into the environment and delete everything, including, by the way, all of their, the backups, because the backups were also stored in AWS uh, with the same credentials and so on, right? Not in, separate, um, in a separate uh, VPC or anything like that. So, um, you know, this company went out of business like in eight hours because they had they had lost all of the source code for all of their customers. Uh, and part of the, the problem is that they made certain assumptions about what AWS was providing in terms of security. Right. Um, if and the end, they didn't really understand how AWS could have helped them in this situation. Right. Like if the if before they had decided to uh, change administrative passwords, if they had called up AWS and said, can you please help us? by snapshotting everything, right, and moving some stuff off or, uh, you know, something like that. And, or if they had understood that uh, that there were other types of protections available to them if they had turned on multi-factor authentication and, and so on, um, you know, these things could have been prevented, right, or, or they would have had a much better shot at, at coming out okay on the other end of this thing. So, um, so I think that, that part of it is having that, that upfront communication and conversation with with your vendor uh, through the, your your primary point of contact, whether that's that's an account manager or whatever, uh, but then really getting down to brass tacks with some of the technical folks on the other side, so that everybody knows way ahead of time if there is an an incident, if there is an event, you know what the plan is and how all of the moving pieces of the investigation are going to work. You explaining that story, my stress and anxiety, that is crazy and wild. I feel so bad for those guys. That's terrible. Oh, my gosh. But I can absolutely understand when you're saying that there's that disconnect, right? Like, oh, I thought you guys were doing that. Oh, I thought you were doing that. So that happens. Would you say, maybe not that scenario specifically, but that type of miscommunication on who's doing what happens more often than not and more often than people realize perhaps? 
Yeah, I think that, um, you know, folks sign up for, it, uh, well, okay, this goes back to my, it depends on the organization and how big it is and how mature it is, right? So you've got um, really large organizations who have a super rigorous and potentially even painful um, kind of procurement process where they really vet or try to really vet their vendors and, and their security capabilities and, and nail down SLAs and metrics and all that kind of thing. Um, but then you also have at the other end of the spectrum, very small organizations that are, they know they need, they need uh, help. They need to outsource their IT operations or whatever, because, you know, they, they sell shoes or whatever their, their actual business is. They're not in the business of IT. And uh, so they kind of outsource, they, they often pick just on price. Um, they don't necessarily have the in-house expertise to really pick the right service set. Um, and so they are, again, making assumptions about what's really being provided and what's not. And then, you know, somewhere in the middle, you've got, you've got your medium-sized companies or companies that are maybe larger, but not terribly sophisticated or mature um, that are kind of somewhere on that spectrum, right? Who um, are making some assumptions on what the, the uh, vendor is providing, maybe haven't nailed down specific key performance indicators and SLAs and, and don't have a really good understanding of, of what they're getting. You know, I, I guess one of the analogies I, I like to use when talking about this is really it's like at a shopping mall where uh, if you have a, a store in a shopping mall, okay, you sign an agreement with the, the landlord, the owner of the mall, um, and they're going to provide you with certain things, right? They provide lighting in the, the parking garage and or the parking lot. They might provide security guards who walk around the common areas of the mall, they, they provide um, fire suppression, fire detection, right? Those kinds of things. But when it comes to actually uh, preventing people from stealing things inside your store, that's that's your issue, right? That's, that's your responsibility. Or uh, making sure that you have good hiring practices or that you can investigate employee theft, that kind of thing, uh, that's your responsibility, right? And, and you, you shouldn't be relying on, on the service provider or the landlord in this case uh, to cover those things for you. And so it's really important to understand, you know, what's, what's in your, your bucket of things, of responsibilities, and, and what's not. Absolutely. And you're so right. I really like the analogy that you use. And I still... I still think there needs to be some room for improvement because this podcast is obviously dedicated to not just CISOs or CTOs. It's all types of executives that need to understand about cybersecurity. So, Ted, I'd like to sort of switch gears for a second and talk about, so sort of wrap all this conversation up around the digital forensics reporting side of things. So if I give like a scenario, I want to sort of talk through it because I think this is important. And I haven't had anyone on my show talk about this, and I, and I and I do want people to really take note of your your experience and your thoughts around how to do this accurately. So, if you're an executive and you need to review a digital forensics report, and then you'll need to communicate the high level points to your CEO to then provide an update on this front. So, the the update could be to the media to customers, to internal employees about what's happening. 
So I want to sort of understand specifically how you'd structure your report and the language that you'd use to then communicate that to executives. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, it's really important for you to understand the needs of your particular audience, right? And I like to call it, you know, you need to know for the particular consumer of your deliverable or of your report, what makes their care light illuminate? You know, if you you can deliver the most technically detailed and accurate report in the world, but if you can't get the audience to care about it, then you've really, you you haven't succeeded in your mission. And so, um, so part of it is, is understanding how the recipient is going to need to use the, the report. If you're, going to be giving it to the CTO or the, you know, the head of network infrastructure, well, they need enough information, technical detail to understand, hey, what failed here? What kind of security measures failed? What needs to be fixed right now and how do I do it? Uh, and then, you know, how do we address this for to prevent it from in the future, right? If you're talking to the CFO or providing them with information, they probably want to know, like, what are the hard costs of any downtime that we incurred because of this incident? Uh, Do you have estimates about what sort of downstream costs there might be related to things like breach notification or fines for for like not complying with regulate? regulatory requirements, that sort of thing. Um, or if you're providing information general counsel, maybe they're most concerned with whether the details of the incident and how it occurred can be used to demonstrate negligence on the part of the company, right? And and if there's a way, or maybe they're interested in, hey, can you actually accurately provide me attribution uh, of external actors that we can either litigate against or, uh, or you know, try to pursue prosecution on. Um, but in terms of, so in terms of structuring the report though, particularly let's say for a CEO, of course you want to have an executive summary up front, right? That's, that is super concise, that really um, communicates the key points as concisely as possible because ultimately they're probably going to have to communicate all of that information to the board or, or others. And so, you need to capture the things that are going to make their care light illuminate, right? And I, I guess the main body of the report really needs to capture or or to depict what happened as sort of a broad category of events. You know, was this a breach with the dis- disclosure of, of sensitive data? Was it denial of service or ransomware or whatever it might be? What What was the scope of what happened? Like, which systems were affected, which kinds of what data got affected? Uh, did it only affect us or was this maybe a larger kind of attack, a larger incident that affected others in our industry or the internet as a whole or whatever? And then how it happened, but really in very brief kind of terms, you know, was there a technical failure? And if there was, was it a failure on our side in one of our systems or was it somebody else's systems that failed that we kind of were collateral damage in? Um, was it a process or a procedural problem that made this occur? Or was it human error, you know, some, just a simple mistake? Uh, how did we respond to it? How did we resolve it? it hopefully we have resolved it at this point. Um, and what was the impact to to our company or our organization? Direct impacts like downtime, uh, financial impacts, direct cost, indirect costs, Maybe things like 
reputational impact as well, considering the, those types of things. Um, are we going to get sued over this? Uh, is there anybody we can sue over this? Do I need to fire somebody, right? Um, does our insurance cover this? Uh, and how do we prevent this kind of incident from occurring in the future? Have we already started implementing the right kinds of changes to prevent this in the future? Uh, and how much is that going to cost, right, the prevention side of things? Um, so I think, right, structuring it in that way covers really the kind of salient things that executives really need to know. And then depending on which executive you're talking to, you might tailor it even further. Wow, that's excellent. Re- anyone we can sue, are we being sued? Re- relevant points. In terms of, do you get an executive summary? This may be hard to answer, but I'm going to ask you anyway. So people have different versions of an executive summary. As a estimate, how many words would you sort of say? Because I've seen executive summaries that go for two or three pages. To me, that feels a little long. Maybe I'm wrong, but I'm happy for you to correct me or provide some indication so people know they may think they're giving a high-level exec summary, but in fact, it's super detailed and it lists every single thing that's happened uh, because they they feel that it's a requirement to, to talk about that specifically. Yeah, I think I think that really if you're going past a page or maybe a page and a half, right? Something like that. You're, you're probably getting too deep into the weeds. If possible, what, what you should try to do is take, take uh, items that are related to one another and try to come up with a way to categorize those so that you can clump them together into a single bullet point. And then, you know, in the body of the, of the report, you can give a little more nuance and, and, definition or or um, delineate some of the the kind of contours of that uh, in, in more depth. But really, I think what you want to give your executive is here is a, f- a couple of sentences about generally what happened. Here are the top three to five bullet points that you really need to know and you need to be able to communicate clearly to others, whether that be the board or to external counsel or whom, whomever. Um, and then, and then what we as an organization are doing about it, right. Or have done about it in order to close, um, to resolve the issue, close the, the vulnerability that got exploited in the first place, um, and to prevent these things from happening again. Right. Um, I mean, I think it's the, what happened, how it happened, but not in very much detail. And what are we doing about it? What about language? Because you've you've mentioned before that you've got to tailor it. So if you're speaking to a CFO, they they talk in financial language. And then if you're speaking to a CTO, they care about technology. How would you go about sort of structuring that? Does the language, will it differ significantly? Or what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, yeah, I think that you may. So I'd say that that from the executive summary perspective, they might not be that different, although certainly you need to t- tailor that again to your audience, right? Because that top three to five bullet points that the consumer cares about may be different depending on the audience. Um, so I, I do think that, again, it's it's really knowing what it is that the, the person you're presenting the, or you're giving the report to is going to need to have in there to meet their particular uh, 
business requirements, right? So how are they going to use your product? How are they going to use your, your report and then tailor it appropriately? So the, the language certainly is going to vary depending on whether the audience, the intended audience is technical or not. So let's say, um, Again, if you're providing it, this kind of information to your CEO as the consumer, then you need to understand what's going to turn on his care light. And it's, it's really easy to get caught up in kind of the technical gee whiz sort of aspects if it's a particularly clever exploit or whatever. Um, and sometimes, you know, if you, you are a tech company and the CEO happens to be super technical because she or he kind of started the temp company by writing a clever application or whatever, then cool, you can probably go down the rabbit hole with them a bit. But generally speaking, if you're talking to the CEO or you're presenting the, uh, these facts to the CEO, then you're going to need to really highlight some some very specific business-facing types of things, right? Um, and highlight, highlight not only the what what went wrong, like the control failures, but you might also want to highlight like what the what things did work, um, what kinds of detection or alerting maybe that happened that that worked in order to kick off the investigation in the first place, and you know that can at least help you to demonstrate the value of some of the investments that you maybe already have put into security solutions, right? Um, but in terms of, of tailoring things, certainly if you're talking to the CFO, you're going to need to be really talking about costs and, and return on investment for existing security um, investments that the organization has made, right? Or uh, if you're talking to internal counsel, you know, looking at things like, like what is the risk picture um, and what are the potential pitfalls for the organization in terms of culpability and civil liability and those kinds of things? Yeah, that's excellent. I really appreciate you sharing that. The other thing I'd like to ask us on that again is, would you say it's a fair assumption to include like ongoing communication? So what I mean by that is if it's, it's a pretty full on incident and I don't know, maybe it's completely taken everything down and perhaps there's a note in the executive summary to say every day at 11 a.m. we're going to give updates to the media, to our clients about what's happening. Because I, I, I've seen this a lot with incidents that we've had an incident, this happened, and then we never hear from the company around the continuous communications around what they're doing. And it's sort of like it just goes into a black hole, then all of a sudden everything's back up and running again five days later. I still think there's that gap in the communications around this is what we're doing every day, even if there's no update. It's about upward managing, providing an update that we are still working on the problem. Please bear with us while we, you know, get things up and running again. Would you say that's important to note as well? Sure. So certainly that's part of, I think, a, a larger question around is it important to make sure that the entire communication plan as part of or as a subset of your uh, your incident response processes is, is addressed and well understood ahead of time, right? So certainly when you have a really major incident, you're going to be pulling in legal, you're going to be pulling in public relations or media relations and so on. Um, and there's definitely going to be some discussion around how much the organization is willing to provide public commentary or public updates. And that's going to probably vary widely between organizations and even between incidents, quite frankly, within the organization, 
depending on the kind of data that was uh, that was affected and and the facts of the case, right? If you if you know going into this, uh oh, we really made a major mistake here. Legal might want to clamp down on that, right? Until they get a better picture of of what that means from a liability perspective. Um, and so, a lot of that is going to be. Um, I mean, we can certainly like recommend or 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 suggest that as we're updating executives or updating senior management. But ultimately, that's probably going to be largely out of the the security uh, organization's hands. Totally understand. Thank you very much for sharing your thoughts. So just lastly, so we've spoken about what you would include, what you'd sort of do, the language, the structure. What would you intentionally leave out, though, perhaps, that people may be putting in their report that you'd sort of recommend that they perhaps just leave it off? Sure, yeah. So um, anything anything that, that I think, you know, you couldn't explain to um, – to a, a non-technical person within two or three sentences, right? So it's all, of, as I said before, it's really easy to kind of get, get enamored of the technical details of how this thing occurred because it was particularly clever or whatever. Um, but you need to, to consider whether, whether the material that you put into the report provides value or not to its intended consumer. So, you know, really for not, and not just for, for digital forensics, but quite frankly, for any sort of business documents you create, right? Why am I writing this particular sentence? Am I, am I actually adding anything of value to my deliverable by putting this, this sentence into the, this uh, document, right? And if the, if, if you think about the context of how it's going to be used by a particular audience, um, if the answer isn't yes, then you probably don't need to put it in the document. Absolutely right. No, you're so you're so right. And I, I I was going to ask like how would you sort of define value, but I think you sort of answered that because again, if it's not needed or someone's not going to read it, you probably don't need it. And so I think that those are a really good way, easy way to self-assess when you're writing stuff. I probably don't need to put this in. So I've absolutely enjoyed this chat today. I think you've you've given really, really good insights, information on this stuff, because again, I feel like this is definitely an area that do- does need improvement. It's not an easy thing to do. I want to just caveat that and say this type of report writing to then communicate that to other people that don't understand the incident at the sort of specific details this is a hard thing to do so I really do appreciate you getting into the the nuts and bolts of things because I wanted to sort of pull that apart so people can can take stuff away from this interview that they can implement today that they perhaps they are doing wrong perhaps they are writing things in their reports they shouldn't be so I really really appreciate your your thoughts and your time Ted if people perhaps have a question that I didn't ask you today, even though I asked you like a thousand, how can they go about getting in contact with you? Sure. Uh, so I'm happy to answer questions. They can email me um, at ted at positronic, P-O-S-I-T-R-O-N-I-Q.com. Wonderful. Well, thanks again, Ted. I really appreciate you coming on the show and I can't wait to get you back. Great. Thank you very much, Chris. I appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in. 
We hope that you found today's episode useful and you took away a few key points. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast to get our latest episodes. If you'd like to find out how KBI can help grow your cyber business, then please head over to kbi.digital. This podcast was brought to you by KBI.media, the voice of cyber.